My guest for today is a multi-talented entertainer known for the television series Fame, the movie Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, and has performed in the equity stage productions of Tats, Ragtime Aida, and has appeared on the Broadway stage in Aida. Were you in, on Broadway in other things in Aida, or was it just the equity for well, Tats and Ragtime? There were Broadway production contracts for A Chorus Line, Cats, and Aida, and Ragtime. And Ragtime. But, but Ragtime, but, but Aida was the one that I did actually on Broadway. But the other ones were Broadway production. There were Broadway productions of those shows. Uh, you might also know uh, my guest from, from the most classic dance movie, Breakin'. Phineas Newborn III, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I really am so happy to be here with you again. Our, our history goes back many, many years, and I'm grateful to actually be interviewed by somebody who I, again, was honored to actually even be in the surroundings of when I was growing up. So you are definitely part of my formative years. Well, I'm so happy to have you here, and I know that uh, people, as you were growing up, used to often mistake you for me because we look yeah. quite similar as 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 children. Uh, yeah, actually, that 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 would give me a great opportunity to share my first story with Corey Baker, which I I entered a lookalike contest for Corey Baker when I was a kid. I must have been probably about five years old, and of course, like every black you know um, child in in America, we all wanted to be you. You you were on TV, uh. <laughs> so 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 it was it was something that. I actually in I actually entered a, a lookalike contest where you did not win, but I did enter. So we've come full circle. We have come full circle. Now you've been an actor, a singer, a dancer, choreographer, and you can cook and sew as well. What can't you do? <laughs> um, you know, and it's funny. It's interesting that you asked me that because when I was a kid, one of the things also that I would say to people when they would ask me, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I would say, "I want to be a Renaissance man." And they were like, do you even know what that is? And I says, yeah, that's just somebody who could do everything. That's interesting. So I, How old were you then? I was probably around seven years old. Wow. And you knew what a Renaissance man was. I knew what a Renaissance man. I don't know where I found out what, what the definition of it was, but um, maybe it was because I was looking at something about Paul Robeson or something. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned that he was a Renaissance man. And, um, and I just, I said, I want to do that. I want to do everything. I don't want to just be able to just master one thing. And I, and I had a, a feeling that it was also artistically motivated because my dad, you know, obviously, you know, being the genius pianist that he was, um, he was somebody that basically that's what he did. He could just play the piano. And I didn't want to compete with that because obviously I knew I could not, but I knew I could do, I, I had the chance to do everything that he couldn't do. So that's what led me to begin singing, to begin dancing to begin acting because he was not very much of a speaker as well so he really spoke and, and, and communicated through the piano in which of your many talents are you the most proud of or, or like if you could only have one of the thing of the many many things that you can do which one would you pick oh that's that's a very good <laughs> question that's very interesting i've never thought about that if i could only choose one uh, well, I mean, I think our, the arts is, I think, all considered one. I would, I would say, personally. The, you well, know, I know, I know, I know that I know that artistically expressing yourself vocally or through your body or through or through your words or through your speech is all a similar art form. Hmm. So I, I, I'll just, I'll just say that I wouldn't have to choose because basically that that's that I would just be an artist. I would be an artist. That's exactly what you are. So uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that makes perfect sense because that's the yeah. great thing about being an artist is to delve into more than one thing <laughs> yes absolutely uh, you're a los angeles native what part of la did you grow up i grew up in lemur park and what was it Which like place? for you growing up as a child in the i guess you would be 60s too 60s early 70s or 70s 60s, 60s, 70s? i was born in 63 i was born in 63 and it was interesting because again you know, I really you, you you don't know when you're a kid the area that you're living in. It's just not something that you really know. But I I learned I later realized that I was in I was growing up in the Black Arts District of L.A., hmm. which was interesting because I never felt like it was an artistic district when I was growing up there. I just felt like my neighborhood. 
And the only difference that I really noticed is that it was a very segregated neighborhood. It was pretty much everybody on my block, uh, everybody on my block was black. Hmm. And it wasn't until I actually started venturing out and going to other areas in terms of my education that I actually incurred a lot more communication and just and just relationships with with other with other races. Hmm. So really, growing up in Lamert Park during that time was again kind of kind of um, kind of a, a um, I don't want to call it a scary time, but it was it was a definitely more aggressive time. The Crips and the Brims, two rival gangs, were very prominent in, in our in our area. And I would remember growing up and being on the street. And if they said, okay, the, the Brims are coming down the street, we'd all have to run inside our houses. And we'd wait for them to pass down the middle of the street. And then we'd come back out to play or the, or the, or the Crips or whatever. So it was that kind of an environment. But it was a very, it was also a very, a very, um, uh, just a very, a very uh, supportive environment in terms of our, our neighborhood community. Obviously, you know, like all the stories that you hear about parents, you know, you know, being surrogate parents of other kids in the neighborhood. You know, I, all all of all of the parents in the neighborhood watched out for each other's kids. It was not. It was very. It was very community um, oriented. Um, you know, and then I, I actually, I actually, um, we lived very close by to my grandmother. Who um, who lived um, just about not even a half a mile away, and when I went to elementary school, um, I my first three years of elementary school were, uh, I was in a different house. Um, I was at, I was at an apartment. We lived on Sixth Avenue, and the and the elementary school was just literally probably around the corner. But I remembered um, when I was going to elementary school, I would get jumped all the time. Meaning kids would 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 um, would approach me and ask me for my lunch money and make me give it to them. <laughs> and after and after the last time when probably I was in the beginning of my third grade year, um, I told my grandmother I'm never gonna go back to that school ever again. And she was working for the Board of Education at that time and actually got me signed into the first PWT busing program to Bel Air. <laughs> and that was where my world's kind of just shifted in terms of I felt like I always said I was living in fantasy land, but I was growing. I was living. I was living in, in reality, but going to school in fantasy land. Hmm. So basically, it was like I, I recognized at a very young age that that was a different way of life, and I was being being honored, being privileged enough to actually be around that that you know that those those people. But that was not really my background. And so it really kind of also started to just promote just the idea of how to basically fit into both to both areas and to, with with both society with both socially economic um, you know uh, groups of people, and so that was that was really kind of like my my first opportunity in recognizing that where I was living was not was not necessarily the best situation, mm-hmm. and that obviously going going to school in Bel Air all of my friends had mansions and they were living in, you know, just with, with extreme wealth. And it was just a totally different, different reality. But then when I would come back to my neighborhood, all the kids in my neighborhood would always tease me and say, oh, oh now, now you're sounding white because hmm. you're going to that white school. Hmm. And I was like, okay, okay. So that's kind of when that whole thing kind of started. But growing up in that, in that time, in that, in that neighborhood, um, it, was, it was fun because we would always, you know, be out in the street you know, playing, playing in the middle of the street and doing all those fun games, football and tag football and, and just all the things that you do as, as a community of young people growing up in the same block. And, um, and a lot of my, a lot of uh, some of the kids in my neighborhood actually were also, you know, brought into the PWT busing program. So they were also going to school with me in these other areas. So we had certain things that we, we had in common as well. But thank you for asking. That was, yeah. So you went to now, middle school in Bel Air then? I went. I went to elementary school. In elementary Bel- school in Bel Air. I went to middle school in Westwood. Mm-hmm. I went to Emerson Junior High School. So after I finished at Bellagio in Bel Air, I went to middle school and junior high school. It was called then mm-hmm. um, to Emerson, right mm-hmm. behind the Mormon Temple in in West LA. And from there, you made your way to Beverly High. And and from there, I made my way to Beverly. So that's cool. Yeah. So your grandma kind of kept you out of that other environment and just continued to keep you. Uh, in places where that would give you, you know, I mean, when you see other people having certain things, it definitely, I think, 
helps you to think that you can have those same things. Uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the things. And again, it was interesting because for some reason, um, a lot of the parents of the kids that I was going to school with were very, very um, supportive of, of just who I was and just affirming what my potential was. Hmm. And they were, and, and they would be very, very beneficial just in terms of just introducing me to things that that um, that I would have never been introduced to if I would have just stayed in my neighborhood. But also, I was really fortunate to, to be um, to, in junior high school is when I actually auditioned for the boys choir, which was also a huge shift in terms of just my my creative um, foundation in terms of growing up in a, in, in, a, in a choir that really taught me everything from sight reading, music theory, um, you know, stage performance, all of it, you know, vo vocal instruction. So that was really my first my first introduction to real formative, artistic, um, creative expression, you know, training. Huh. And were you a popular kid growing up? And what were the differences in your new <laughs> environment in Bel Air and Westwood and Beverly Hills compared to uh, where to to uh, uh, shoot no, I'm, Ladera Heights? Wait, yeah, wait. Lamert, Lamert, Lamert Park, Park. Lamert Park. Yeah. Well, it's actually very interesting because I was teased a lot when I was when I was in my neighborhood because I was a very overweight kid. I was very, 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 very fat. I was 165 pounds at 12 years old, and I was 4'11". Mm -hmm. So I was kind of four by four. Mm -hmm. And basically, in my neighborhood, it was I was ridiculed and teased all the time. It was only when I went to those schools that a lot of the ridicule and the teasing stopped. But literally, on the bus going to school, on the bus coming back from school, I would get it from 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 my, the kids in my neighborhood about my weight, hmm. and it was terrible. I hated it. It really, it really just created so much depression in me as a young as a young child that um I can't I can't even I can't even believe that I actually survived that time. But it was def but I I definitely own a lot of my a lot of my health regime and the, just the way I take care of my body today because of that time. Hmm. I'm saying I'll, I'll never I'll never be that person again. And I think that's another one of the reasons why I also have become very very health conscious during the course of my life. So the 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 kids in Lamert Park would bully you, kind of. Yeah, they would they would bully me. But the but the kids in in Bel Air and Westwood did not bully you. No, no, they did not. Why do you think that is? I think it's cultural. Mm -hmm. I think that again, I was probably I was probably um, bringing up some of their own personal insecurities. Now that we know about bullying, and a lot of the bullies are pretty much the most insecure people on the playground. Mm -hmm. But they need to kind of bring down the people that they're most insecure of. And I think that because of the way I carried myself, because of the way I articulated myself, they had to find ways to kind of bring me down. Hmm. And that was the way that they basically did it. Hmm. But the reality is that, um, you know, I, there was there was there was a balance. But unfortunately, I didn't I didn't live. I didn't spend the majority of my time in those other settings. Mm -hmm. I spent the majority of my time in my neighborhood. So that was the that that, that was the that was the challenge growing up. Also, I grew up with three with with three siblings, two brothers and a sister from my mom's first marriage that were all nine, ten, and eleven years older than me, hmm. and they and they were growing up in a very militant African and pro African American time. Hmm. So they were very very conscious of making sure that I grew up to be a strong black man. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so a lot of, a lot of their a lot of their um their influence was also kind of harsh because I was not. I was not really uh, um, uh, appearing and, and, and acting as such mm -hmm. in terms of what they thought being a militant young black man was all about. Mm -hmm. So it was it was challenging. Uh, it's interesting in a sad way why there does always seem to be at least one bully in every school. So for whatever oh, reasons, I, the bullies in, in Westwood and Bel Air didn't didn't target you, which is good. <laughs> but uh, why do you think it is that? You know, you talk to anyone, there's at least one bully that they can recall <laughs> that they oh, went yeah. to school with. Well, it, it's interesting because all of my bullies, I, I remember their first and last names. Hmm. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do too, actually. I mean, I had bullies <laughs> when I grew up too, and I remember their first and last names. Right. So so it's, it's interesting. I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that just in terms of just the difference between you know, like, you know, like like we know in terms of obviously the insecurities of bullies and the reason why they actually really act out 
their own personal insecurities, just trying to bring down who they actually really are either jealous of or or finding some kind of um, some kind of feeling of of, of lack of superior, of there, there's some kind of superiority in the person that they're bullying mm-hmm. that they're not able to identify and articulate, mm-hmm. but they feel they feel less than, mm-hmm. so they just try to bring you down so that they feel bigger or better than. Mm-hmm. But but that but that you know that that's all a part of it. But again, for me, I think the thing that I've learned from just processing it as an adult is that. I have to thank God for some of those bullies because that's a lot. A lot of my character comes from me being able to survive and make it through those instances, and being able to actually stand up for myself and not allow their impression or their or their or their definition of who they thought I was to be really who I was. Hmm. And for me to really make it very very clear that that I was not good. I was not good. I was going to not be a, a, a poly, a, unapologetically me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Your father was the legendary jazz pianist Phineas Newborn Jr., the second. Yes, Jr. He was born in Tennessee? Yeah, he was actually born, he was born in Whiteville, Tennessee, but lived most of his life in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And and he, well, not only is a legendary uh, jazz pianist himself, but also his brother and father were jazz musicians too yes and yeah my grandfather was it was a jazz drummer right and my my uncle was a jazz guitarist and interestingly enough the story about that is that my grandfather wanted to have basically a trio a jazz trio Mm -hmm. his wife mama rose my grandmother was a singer a jazz singer he was a drummer and he says well when we have children rose each of them are going to play an instrument and my dad was first and he came out he was gonna he was handed the piano fortunately it was just something that he really took to immediately and then when my uncle was born he was handed the guitar so that they would basically be able to have this trio to kind of um for them to escape from 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 the the you know the, the poverty of memphis tennessee at that time and and just the 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 typical plight of the of the african-american during that time um and so that was going to be their ticket out so fortunately, like I say, my, my father really obviously took to the piano because he was one of the people who was like a, a prodigy. So when he was six years old, he could play Tchaikovsky without ever taking the piano lessons, without ever taking lessons. He was he playing by ear. He was playing by ear. He could just listen to it play, being played on the radio and go to the piano and start playing it. And they were like, well, how do you do that? And then he got very good at Boogie Woogie. And that's when my, my grandfather decided, well, let's put him on stage as a six-year-old playing boogie woogie and impressed the crowd and many of the crowd thought that he was he was a little person thought that he was a midget back mm-hmm. in those days they would just call him a midget because they're like there's no way that this little that this little six-year-old can play boogie woogie like that mm-hmm. they're like he's got he's got he's got to be a dwarf he's got to be a, a little person you know he's he's a full-grown adult in this in this in this little body but yeah so so that's basically what what happened um you know and again you know that 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 whole period of time which is so is such an inspiring part of american history because that's really the first thing that american culture gave to america that was american was jazz hmm. you know and, and uh, your uncle also had a close relationship with elvis presley um, yes actually my said- father and my uncle did and, and my grandfather did because hmm. elvis grew up in, in in a neighboring neighborhood and he was very 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 poor and basically every Sunday, because my grandfather was a band leader at the Plantation Inn, but also as well as being a band leader, he had another job. He was a cap- he worked in a cafeteria. Mm-hmm. And on Sundays, at the end of their at the end of their at the end of their day, they would allow the the people who worked there to take the remaining food because they were going to have to throw it out. And so my grandfather would always come home with all this food, and Elvis would come over and they'd eat. And then my dad and Calvin, my uncle, would take Elvis down to Beale Street and they would watch jazz and watch my grandfather's band in the Plantation Inn. Mm-hmm. And basically um, the word, because my, my uncle is a, is a guitarist and he would dance, dance, dance and jump and just shake his hips, do everything possible because he was definitely a showman <laughs> and on the guitar. And basically that's where Elvis picked up a lot of his his physical um, performance moves was from my uncle. 
cool. So your third, or or does it even go back further? Third generation entertainment in your family uh, from your father's yeah, side. Yeah, uh, third third generation entertainment. Yeah, my 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 grandfather's father was a was a minister, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, basically, and and he was actually he was actually born into slavery. Mm-hmm. So so um, when he actually became free, he became he changed his name, which is Armor. Uh, Armor was our last name, a slave name, to newborn when he became born again in the church. Mm-hmm. So that's where the newborn started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your your father, as talented as as he was, was very troubled too. I don't think it's a secret that you know he had issues with drugs and alcohol. How did yes. that affect you growing up? I I know at a certain point, you know he he left or yeah. or was no longer living with you but how how did that experience kind of affect you well it was interesting because again like i like you know you know like, like i've already said before you don't really know what you're living in when you're living in it when you're that young and all i knew was that's who my dad was it wasn't until i saw how other fathers interacted with their kids that i realized that my dad was different mm-hmm. and when i would watch shows like the courtship of eddie's father or the brady bunch i was like my dad doesn't do that mm-hmm. how come my dad doesn't do that mm-hmm. you know it doesn't have conversations like that to, with me and besides the fact that he was doing you know certain drugs is that he also had mental illness issues mm-hmm. and i don't know if it was also promoted because of the korean war because he was over there uh, or what hmm. um, but but um, in some ways it was just really he would his his behavior is just bizarre mm-hmm. when you look at it as as I began to mature and realize in comparison to other people it was bizarre because it was not it was not like what other other people were doing mm-hmm. Hmm. and and I'll never forget when I actually when my father died they did a 10 page um, you know just honorary article on my dad in the village voice in New York and in the article, they they they're very explicit in terms of the details of his of his mental illness, of his drug addiction, of all of it, of when you know just medical records and psychiatric evaluations from therapists, and and basically, I remember asking my mom. I was like, Mom, did you know Dad was crazy mm-hmm. when you married him? Mm-hmm. And she said to me, Yes, Phineas, mm-hmm. I do, because I was crazy too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I didn't really fully understand until, of course, as years go by, and I hear more and more stories of of just of just the the insanity that was probably just you know running around my house when I was that age, mm-hmm. and I didn't really even know what was going on. Um, that that I was really living in a very dysfunctional environment, which is the reason why my mom eventually basically asked my dad to you know to to, to move back to Memphis, mm-hmm. and that it wasn't healthy for me to grow up in that environment anymore, mm-hmm. and so. And that was, and that was pretty, and that was, and that was 10 then. He came back to live with us when I was 13, when he got nominated for a Grammy mm-hmm. um, in 75. And, um, and yeah, and the thing that's interesting about my neighborhood, Mark, is that the kids in my neighborhood, all of their parents were huge fans of my dad's. Mm. And no matter what, nobody ever ridiculed me about my dad hmm. they were all like they all knew from their parents do not ever talk badly about Phineas's dad hmm. he is a genius he's living on another plane another level in another world mm-hmm. and it's okay because I mean that's just who he is mm-hmm. but th- that was something that was it was also another another thing that kind of balanced out the 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 ridicule that I was receiving at the same time was so I was like because I remember telling one person, one of the parents one day said to me, she says, Phineas, your, your dad is so special. And I was like, no, he's not. You don't live with him. And she said, and she just laid into me, Mark. Mm-hmm. She just basically said, Phineas, never do I ever want to hear you say another bad thing about your dad. He's brilliant. He's a genius. Mm-hmm. And you just need to appreciate him for who he is. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really understand it. But what it did for me, unfortunately, at that time, is that it just, it prevented me from actually being able to express my authentic genuine emotions about what I was experiencing so I basically I basically swallowed a lot of my feelings about my dad during that time because mm-hmm. I felt like I couldn't really express them without being without retaliation mm-hmm. you know from from people that from adults that I that were that I was speaking with so I didn't say anything about him anymore hmm. I'm sure that must have affected you uh I mean basically growing up with a father like that, but then c- completely not having him in, in your life at all from what, 13 on? When, when, when was the last time that you actually 
saw your father. Well, from, well, from well, no, I mean, he would come into town occasionally. And so I would see him when he would come into town. And I remember that before he passed away, Ray Brown, who was, who was Ella Fitzgerald's husband, mm -hmm. who was one of his, he was in his Basis. first trio. A bassist, very famous bassist, was 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 bring, was flying my father into town because he knew he was sick and he was dying, mm -hmm. and he was basically putting him in their studio and making him record as much as he possibly could so that he could basically sell these uh, sell these recordings after he passed. And my father would come into town and he basically, you know, would 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 you know would see me. And um, I would go down to the studio and watch, and Ray Brown would always say, Phineas, when you're in the studio, your dad plays like he used to play. Hmm. I want you to always be here. And I kind hmm. of really, really um, was kind of uh, just annoyed by that or hmm. insulted by that because I was like, because my dad already told me he's taking advantage of me, he's using me, hmm. but I need the money, and I wish I didn't have to do this, but I do. Hmm. And and so I, I, I wouldn't go further out, for, uh, you know, far out beyond what I was doing that I could do to be there. But but to answer your question question mark, um he what he came in and out of my life during the during the rest of those years, but it was not consistent. Mm -hmm. Um again, you know, I would I would, you know, have conversations with him on the telephone. Um I, I, again, because of his addiction and it's because of his mental illness, he wasn't always really available in terms of um, being able to speak. And I really realized also that my dad really didn't speak very much anyway. Mm -hmm. He was not mm -hmm. a communicator of words. Mm -hmm. And it actually is very interesting because I remember not having conversations with my dad when I was a little boy, but I didn't realize that they were not conversations. I thought that we were talking, but he would it would be always expressions and eye looks and laughs and, and, and just, and I didn't realize that he really wasn't using words until like I said I went and visited other other um, kids and saw how their fathers talked to them and how they interacted with them and I was like my dad doesn't do that mm -hmm. but yeah so no it was very it was very it was very interesting but in terms of just him being in my we were we were pretty much kind of more sporadic like years between visits um, after I was 13 until he passed away and and how do you feel all of that affected you as you developed into an adult and have you reconciled all those things? Yeah, actually, it's interesting that you asked that because one of the things that I actually just thought about as you were asking me that was that um, I believe that having also a daughter who's also in the entertainment industry, I realized that it's very, it was very important for me to kind of find my own my own identity and not be in the shadow of my dad. I was already Phineas Newborn the third, so I was already every time I said my name, I was calling his name into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the important things that ended up happening because he was not very visible in my life was that it gave me the opportunity to really kind of define who I was outside of his presence. And I realized that even having a daughter who who's also had to move through that issue of, of just being compared to her parents. In, a, in an art form that you know our parents basically really thrived and, and and were celebrated during was a challenging part for her but i think that that's also just something that a child who is is growing up in in a family where where the, the talent is being kind of passed down and you're having to define and identify and, and define and identify yourself as a different person it was helpful to me actually to not have him be always around, um, you know, in terms of in terms of me having the ability to obviously orchestrate the course of my life. Like I hated jazz when I was a kid. When I grew up, when I when I joined the boy choir and I was only singing classical music, I loved it because I was like, okay. Even though I didn't realize at that time that my dad, of course, had mastered classical music before <laughs> <laughs> before he started doing jazz. Yeah, many of the but, finest uh, jazz musicians have a classical background that. Exactly, exactly. About. But I, but but I thought I was doing something opposed to him. Mm -hmm. I thought that I'm not going to do jazz. I love classical music, so it's very, very much into classical music and into the operas and into all the classical repertoire that we would do as a choir. But um, but yeah, it wasn't until actually I started dancing and I started actually becoming more, more um, conscious and just understanding this, this affinity that I have for jazz. That's just kind of like in my blood, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, my guess is that your mom has a lot to do with your, your wonderful work ethic, 
Uh, what was the first job that you had? Uh, the first job that I had was actually um, the first professional paid job that I had. Besides, obviously, you know, we had done um, runaways together in high school. The first professional paid job that I got was Course Line. When I got mm. that, I was in high school. That's right. Yeah, you were like right out of high school when you did that. I, I was in high school. <laughs> It was it was three months prior to graduation, actually, when I booked that job. And I never forget because my mom was really never really supportive of me going into the arts. She always wanted me to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I and basically at audition, she's like, well, you've got to go to college. I was like, OK, well, I, I, if I've got to go to college, okay, I guess I'll, I'll go to an art school. So I applied for CalArts, mm-hmm. got into CalArts and um, I got I got offered into two of the different programs. And um and then I auditioned. I went to this open audition for a chorus line because uh, Roxanne Caballero came and talked to our class. You know, you know Roxanne. I mean, she wasn't. It was. She's not Caballero anymore. She's Roxanne. I can't think of what her la- what her mayor married name is now. But she's also still in the industry. But she was. She came to Beverly. She was an alumni, and she talked to our class, musical theater. Mm-hmm. She talked to our musical theater class. She says, if anybody's actually really interested in doing this professionally, I really encourage you to go to this open call for a chorus line. Hmm. And I said, okay, okay, I'll go. I, of course, I, it was during the school time, so I had to play hooky and go. But I went to the audition. And I actually, I, 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 sang, I sang Give Me the Ball, the song that I was going to be hired to sing if I got the show, mm-hmm. which is, again, a very, a very risky kind of move to do. Yeah. But but I sang it. Um, I actually had had, had rehearsed it and 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 in class, you know, the night before, or the day before, for for you know for our class. Mm-hmm. And I went in the next day. And after three callbacks during that day, they offered me the job that day. And I came back and I came back to school with the understanding that I would be able to be able to graduate, mm-hmm. and that the job wouldn't start until summer. Two weeks later, Mark, I got a call saying we're going to start we're going to start in, we're going to start this next month and i said but i haven't graduated yet and they was like okay well if you need, if you still want to finish school you can do that we'll, we'll just add you to the list of possibles in the future and i was like i'm not letting this opportunity mm-hmm. go i'm going to do this so then fortunately i was able to do my finals every morning before rehearsal mm-hmm. I, my rehearsals were from 10 o'clock to six o'clock mm-hmm. between eight and between seven o'clock and nine o'clock i would do my finals at school in the resource centers mm-hmm. and then I would go to rehearsal and basically I was already I was already on the road um, in in Minneapolis performing a chorus line when they were graduating before they were graduating actually before they were graduating mm-hmm. Hmm. so um, that was your first big break in yeah that was my first that was my first and and how old were you when you were finally made it on to Broadway when I made it on, when I actually did, when I did Aida, was when I actually did a show on Broadway. I mean, I did, I, I did Ragtime, which was the first U.S. premiere, which was the Broadway production, but they were already in Toronto and they didn't open on Broadway until after we had opened at the Schubert. Mm-hmm. I did Cats, uh, which was also, like I say, it was the first sit-down Broadway production of Cats in, 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 in the U.S. after Broadway. Mm-hmm. Opened at the Schubert for two years, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so the first, the actual first sit-down Broadway company that I did was Aida, which was I was in my thirties. So, what is that experience like? Is it a big difference from doing equity shows like Cats to being no. on Broadway doing Aida? No, no, nothing. Nothing is different. You're basically doing the same exact show with the same exact set. As they're doing it on Broadway, except you're in a you're just in a different city. So it's no... not like it's not like doing an equity production of mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. equity productions are usually scaled down productions. They're usually more more cost efficient, effective productions for producers to make money. This is something that's really just like a um, it, instead of a touring show. Certain shows will have sit down companies. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like, like, if a show becomes a Broadway, like a Tony Award-winning Best Musical, they'll have like they'll they'll tour with Best Little House in Texas, but in certain cities, like in LA or in Chicago, they may have a sit-down production of that Broadway show, mm-hmm. and that is a full, a fully realized production of that show that's on Broadway. So you're basically seeing the same production that if you were going to go to see it on Broadway, you see it in in LA or you see it in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what have been some other 
breakthrough moments for you? Think roles that you've gotten that have have propelled your career to another or the next level. Well, break-in was a big one because again, break-in was I got break-in when I was nineteen, hmm. um, and so and break-in was again my first my my first my first opportunity to actually dance and act and film. And so that was really exciting because I'd had obviously an acting experience, acting, you know, background in terms of training growing up. Mm-hmm. And I'd never really had a chance to really use it on film. Um, I, I obviously used it in, in, on, in a chorus line. But, um, but as an actor in that, that was really a great, a great experience for me. But also it was interesting because I had no idea that it would become the cult classic that it's become. How did that Mark. all unfold? Like from, from the beginning with the audition process uh the audition process was interesting because it was Jaime Rogers the choreographer who was somebody who also I had I trained with I took you said Jaime Rogers Jaime Rogers wow he choreographed that yeah he choreographed he choreographed break in the first one Hmm. yeah which was interesting because again so I I knew him um but uh but it wasn't until I, I mean, what, what really ended up happening was that I, there was this care. Oh, this is, this is something that you'll find very interesting, Mark, because you were there and you'll know this person, who this person is. There was one of our, one of our people who worked on Runaways, Brunette. Um, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, right? I think her name was Susan. I can't think of her name. But but she worked in production. She did not work on the sh- in the show. Hmm. But um, but she was a friend of Matt's. She worked on production and, in Runaways or production in Runaways and Runaways. And, oh. run, and, runaways. and, and um and basically is it is, she, is it that girl that because I know we kind of had a double date one time. Me and this girl Darlene and uh, the woman that was casting assistant to uh, exactly yeah that that's her. is that the same Julie Seltzer. Yes. Who be, yes. later went on to become a big casting director. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. So, so yeah, Julie. So she called me one day and she says, Phineas, there's two, there's two friends of mine who want to go to the Radiotron, who, who want to go to the radio, the radio um, club to watch breakdancing because they have this film script that they're pitching and, um, and they actually have um, a, 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 a film studio behind it. And they're white guys. Would you mind taking them to see um, <laughs> to, to see this guy named um, Ice T? They were looking for some black cover, huh? Yeah, they, and they were like, and, and you can and you can approach the people for them because you know they're white and they're they're not necessarily going to maybe be be um, be be welcomed in the same way. And I went there to that club with them. Hmm. And they said, and they and they said to me, there's still there's a part in there's a part in a script for a gay jazz dancer, and maybe if it comes to it, it, when we're looking for that role, it's something maybe you could you could audition for. I, I had no idea. So literally, we're at this club, and they say, the guy that's on the guy that's the DJ, Ice T. We want we, we want him in the movie. Can you go and give him our card? Huh. And I went up to IC and I said, okay, I see. Um, I'm here with two guys that are actually working on a film project and they want you to be in the movie. And, um, and, and I said, this is their information, this is their card. And, um, and then the next thing I knew, months, months, months later, I, I, I'm auditioning for this project and um, I go in for this role of Adam, which is really only like, like one sentence in the whole script. Mm-hmm. And um, I went into the went to the audition, and I was like, "Well, we're really not going to be able to really see what I can do with just me reading this one sentence. Do you mind if I just improv?" And they said, "Oh yeah, sure, go ahead." So I just came in hmm. and just started teasing the director's hair and just being <laughs> extremely flamboyant. That's <laughs> and, cool, but where'd you get that from? I mean, like <laughs> from our training, Mark. I, 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 I didn't know. I mean, that's that's great. That's like really really proactive and and just oh, well, yeah but, but again you, i mean you, you know that we were taught we were, we were taught how to audition how to be prepared and how to walk in and and get the job so i was i was totally aware of taking risks mm-hmm. and being and being comfortable in taking risks mm-hmm. and i knew that that was a risk but i was willing to take it because i was like they're not going to be able to really see what i can do mm-hmm. by me just saying these lines they're going to really need to, and then they and then they actually saw me do it and they were and they were laughing so much. They were like, "Oh, we need to add more to the script for this." Uh-huh. For this script. 
And that's what ended up happening. So basically what ended up happening was that two lines became more lines, became more lines, became me more featured to become, you know, more of a featured inter integral part. But again, you know, I was not openly out at that point in my career. Mm -hmm. And especially mm -hmm. it being my first film 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 role, I did not want to be type typecast for the rest of my career as being this, you know, black gay guy. Mm -hmm. And so I was really very, very conscious of just not, um, not going too far. And the first director that they had actually was really directing us to be more stereotypes mm -hmm. of our characters. Mm -hmm. And so he really was asking me to put it on even more, even hmm. more, even more. But then he was fired. And when he was fired, it gave us Ozone, you know, Shabadu, all of us to send all of us the opportunity to basically not to basically tone down the stereotypes. So basically, yeah. that's when I really was able to tone down a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the jokes regarding you know, my, my character's sexuality in the course of the film and actually ended up being very proud of it because it was never said that I'm a gay, that mm -hmm. I'm a gay yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that I could actually have relationships and alliances with both the urban community and, and our artistic community that was totally on a, on a different, on a different you know, side of the tracks mm -hmm. was really very inspiring to a lot of people in our community. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. I've actually... Go ahead. I, I was gonna, I was just gonna say I've actually learned since then, so many people have came out during the '80s because of that character, hmm, hmm, and hmm. I've and I've had situations where literally um, there was a there was a very there was a recently a gentleman who just won um, the um, the London equivalent of the Academy Awards for a short film that he did, mm -hmm. and he's he was the first openly gay police sergeant in the force of uh, in, in Britain in, in, in London hmm. and um, and he and he came out because of my character well my feeling is the same as black characters I mean there's nothing wrong with a stereotype because it exists otherwise it wouldn't be a stereotype but you have to at least show the other two and as long yeah. as you have an equal amount of rep representation of something that's not a stereotype. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a good laugh about this, that, or the other, but, but, you know, you should show that that's not just it. And I think that's the issue with a lot of people is because there's so few of minorities represented don't represent them in like this negative way because, you know, yeah. them getting picked on and abused and, 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 you know, a lot of hate, thrown at, yeah. at at minorities whatever the minority is is a very real thing and if they're just, people are just seeing this one stereotype it can actually be dangerous to to a certain segment of our population who were some of your early inspirations oh, ben vereen <laughs> yeah of course when i saw him in pippin i was like okay i want to be him have you ever done um, pippin you would be no, right i i have done pippin. oh you I have did lucky you yeah i did yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't want that's one of the many well not many handful or so roles that I wish I had the opportunity to to do at one point where yes. did you do Pippin at I did Pippin in Thousand Oaks I did it I did it in regional theater yeah. and I was his dance captain and we did the original we did the original false choreography and you know Gwen Hilliard you know yeah Gwen. yeah of course Gwen yeah she, she, was, she was a choreographer really on it, wow and she hired me, and I was a, I was a dance captain, and also in the show. Yeah, fantastic. And also understudied, of course, the leading player as well. Yeah. Huh. Who who have been some of the the people that you have met and worked with over the years that have given you your biggest thrill? Oh, Hinton Battle. Um, Hinton was a huge. I was a huge fan of Hinton's when he did Sophisticated Ladies of the Schubert mm -hmm. around the corner from high school. I would sneak in to see that show every night. And literally my senior year, the year that I ended up booking a chorus line, I would go home and stretch after that show until 3 a.m., wake up in the morning, go to school, and literally do the same thing every single night that they had the show. Huh. And and when, and became friends with Hinton. And then later introduced Hinton to an acting school, to, to the Playhouse West Meisner Bay School. And we became very close friends. And then he actually is the person who I started assisting hmm. in dance class and gave me my first opportunity to teach when he was leaving to do the Alamo a, a miniseries in the in the in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and he left for two weeks and, told, and asked Roland, he said, Roland, 
I'm going to be gone for two weeks, but Phineas is going to teach for me without even telling me. <laughs> and then I was like, I was like, but Henson, I've never taught before. He's like, oh, you'll be fine. Just do what I do or do what you want to do. You'll be fine. Huh. And basically that was just, that was the, that was the, the thing that, that was the reason why I ended up in Germany. So he's the impetus to your teaching career. To my teaching career. And, and the and, thing about Go ahead. And to my, into my experience in Germany, which is when we reconnected. Oh, yeah. Because well, well it's Sweden. It was the streets of Sweden, Sweden where I felt that tap on my shoulder from you. But I know yes. you have traveled the world as both a performer and dance instructor. So yes. I was kind of curious because I was talking to Billy Goodson not too long ago. And uh, I was trying to find out how he got started in that whole thing. And I was kind of thinking that he was the reason that you started teaching in Europe. But it was actually Hinton that it was, it was him. It was him that actually inspired me mostly in terms of my dance. He was the one that actually I mean, he prepared me to be Hinton's assistant, put it that way, hmm. Hmm. you know, because he was the one that actually really gave me a lot of my formative dance training experience. Yeah. You know, it was it was it was Billy. Totally, it was hundred percent Billy. Yeah. But no, the reason even why in your style too, because in your fashion, at certain periods of your life, I noticed a little uh, 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 Billy Goodson uh, uh, influence. Well, it's interesting <laughs> when you were wearing those hats and stuff. The movie, a lot of my a lot of my wardrobe in the movie Breaking was all inspired by Billy. Yeah, because literally the story, the funny thing that we share between us now, of course, being very close, is that. Whenever Billy would wear something in class, one day, the next day, I'd have the exact same thing on. Uh-huh. I would go to the, I would go to the to the dance shop downstairs, buy exactly the same thing, take my buy my bandanas, buy my studded um, belts, and all the accessories, and literally do exactly what he did. Uh-huh. And it got to the point where he would say, literally, if people were if people were saying, "Well, uh, I like what you have on." When you have on, he's like, "Well, I'll tell you when Phineas isn't around." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I was I was totally obsessed, yeah. totally obsessed with Billy. Well, but not a, a, a not not a a poor role model. So you know, if you have no, to pick someone to be influenced and obsessed not, by. He's the one. Uh, what have been some of the your your favorite places uh, amongst your travels, and 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 why were they your favorite places? Well, um, obviously, I was only supposed to be in Germany for six weeks. I ended up staying there for nine months. So there was that was really kind of where I cut my teeth on on teaching, because uh, when I'd been taking when I'd been subbing for Hinton for those two weeks, two women came to came from Munich to recruit a dance teacher to come back to Dance Center Ebenson, you know, which is the studio I taught for in Munich, and um, and basically. They and, and I had been up for two network TV series at the time, and you'll understand this very well because I was up for Dwayne Wayne in a different world. I was up for the final, ne- you know, final final audition for that, mm-hmm. and so it was basically against Kadima myself. And I was up. I was also being considered to replace rerun on What's Happening Now, and both of those jobs were basically um, auditioning simultaneously during the same weeks that these two ladies were auditioning, were, were recruit, trying to recruit me to come to Munich. And every time they would ask me, I'd say no, and they'd offer me more money. I'd say, no, I'm not interested. Because I just knew I was going to get one of these two mm-hmm. TV jobs. I just knew it. And I, and the day, that I, the day that I literally got a call from my agent saying you didn't get either of them, they asked me, offered me more money, and I said, okay, I'll come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for six weeks mm-hmm. and basically that six weeks turned into six months to, to nine months mm-hmm. and basically that's where I just established my own teaching style my own teaching just my own voice my own choreographic style and basically where I really started just inventing myself as a teacher and just uh, defining myself as a teacher and just realizing what I could offer you know people different than what other teachers were offering which was I was offering a dance a dance a dance experience as well as introducing them to their acting um, in, in terms of being able to really convey a, an intention behind the movement that they're being given and, and really allowing acting to be a huge part of storytelling in terms of dance. And that's really kind of what started to set me apart from all the other teachers as well as, of course, coming from L.A. during the video music generation as Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson videos. And I was doing that style in class, and they were only really inter- they were only really had been exposed to East Coast jazz, which was Alvin Ailey, Horton, you know Graham, 
kind of based, um, you know, um, movement, you know, uh, Jack Cole kind of movement, jazz hands only, not not like the kind of um, Janet Jackson sharp, you know, syncopated, you know, movements with music. So um, it was just very interesting because um, that's really when I started to develop as as a as a choreographer and as a dancer. But one of the best places I actually loved being in was Paris. But again, when I first got there, it was a love-hate. In the very beginning, I could not stand it. But then developed a really amazing just um, experience there. Hmm. Where did the hate come from? The hate came from when I first, well, I was first offered a contract when I was in Munich to go to the Paris Salt to, to teach. And um, when I got into the Parasalt with my three big suitcases, with this understanding that I was going to be teaching stages, um, you know, for for the month. Um, uh, when I got there, they said, "Oh no, you can't teach here." Hmm. And I was like, "What? I can't teach here? What do you mean? You offer me a contract? I moved. I, I literally brought everything I have here to teach here." And, and then the guy that I was going to be living with ghosted me. Hmm. And I couldn't, so I didn't have a place to stay. Mm. I didn't have a place to teach. And, um, and fortunately, Cecilia Marta, who was a very famous, well-known, um, Cecilia Marta was a, was a very famous um, West East Coast teacher, choreographer. And basically she was teaching in stage during the same time that I was there. And I said, Cecilia, after I'd been told that I could not teach there, I was like, okay, Cecilia, please, do you mind if I just jump into your class? And I said, and I said, um, and, and, and she says, of course, Fenicia, I would love to have you in my class. I'd be honored if you take my class. So I started taking her, I started, I was taking her class. And as I'm dancing, more and more people from the upper floor of the Parisons, which is where the offices were, were coming out of their offices, looking at me dancing. And after the class, they said, Phineas, can you please come up, come up and talk to us? And I, and I did. And they said, well, the reason why we actually were saying that you couldn't teach here was because we've been getting a lot of people coming from, um, coming from New York saying that they were teachers and they had no teaching experience at all. And we did not want to duplicate that same thing where we have somebody who absolutely knows nothing about dance, who's basically just you know, um, doing whatever he can to get to to to, to get over on these on the on our students. And but you you had already been they, doing breaking by that point, and you had already done equity plays at that point, correct? Exactly. But but they were again they were thinking again. He's just somebody who's just kind of talking about this resume, even though people would would, would come to watch. The, this is before I actually got to got got to be a name in the studio where people would start coming because they knew me from breaking. Mm -hmm. You know. But this is when they didn't really know who I was. They just knew I was a teacher from Munich and that I was I was from America, from L.A. And basically it wasn't until they saw me dance. They were like, OK, yeah, you can teach. And then I started teaching in one of the smaller studios. And it wasn't it didn't take me very long before I was in the big hall, the big studio um, that I ended up teaching the majority of my classes. But um, but yeah. But, but that was that, but that was a love-hate in the very beginning. I didn't have a place to stay. I didn't have a job. I didn't speak French. Mm -hmm. And I got, I got totally just like, um, taxis wouldn't pick me up if I started speaking English to them. They would, they would get out. French people can be very, 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 very rude. Very, very rude. So that's not a myth then? No, it's not. It's not. Well, but, but again, I, then I developed, obviously learned more French and, and, and um, ended up really just becoming very popular in, in France, in Paris. And just, um, you know, it was, again, one of those kinds of things that just kind of just took off. And I stayed there for two and a half years. Well, I, I also loved teaching in, in Japan. Japan was an interesting place because when I first started teaching in Japan, they were like robots. Everything that you did, they could imitate exactly to hmm. the T perfection but they had no they had no Soul? emotional connection yeah yeah huh. and there was just like robots and i was like and again my whole style of teaching was again about connecting intention emotional intention to the movement mm -hmm. so i was really a part of one of the first teachers there who actually was encouraging and inspiring them to actually connect to their inner stories and whatever that may be 
pull from, whether it's their own their own experience growing up as a child or or something that they know. Um, just bringing those stories into the dance that we're doing, and I watched them become more than robots, and they've become extremely, extremely just prolific in terms of their dance ability and just in terms of their emotional impact on how they tell stories through movement. Hmm. Well, I, it wasn't like that when I first got there. I can attest that you definitely were a rock star. I mean, people, these people would follow you. You could have had any man or woman uh, uh, of those students that you had. And, and I have to thank you because I was able to rent a apartment in Sweden for the equivalent of a hundred dollars a month. And as well as uh, you giving me the names and numbers of many of your students that ended up putting me up and stuff. So, uh, and then you were kind of at the peak when everything kind of fell apart. I mean, just with the health issues that you have, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. I think I probably would have thrown myself in front of that train that you contemplated throwing yourself in front of before the picture of your daughter uh, 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 got into your mind. Yeah. How on earth do you get through? I mean, you have a wonderful family. That's one way I know yeah. because, you know, your 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 mom is not going to let you get too down. <laughs> you right. know, she's going to... But... I just, I mean, I, I just can't even imagine having to go through what you had to go through and overcome. What was that yeah. whole experience? It was it. That that was just a that was a very a very deep, very deep journey. That um, looking back now, I'm grateful that I went through it. I wouldn't wish it on anybody in the world. Mm -hmm. But um, it's again, it's one of the things I really attribute to where I've come now in terms of how I look at life and how I live my life today mm -hmm. that I would have never had the opportunity to experience if I had not had that kind of a challenge and crisis in that part of my life. And like you say, I was at the top of my game. I was literally able to do physically whatever I wanted with my body. I could sing, I could do whatever I wanted with my voice. Um, I was, you know, I was, you know, on Broadway living my dream. Um, just, it was amazing. But, but then it was just, again, an opportunity for me to realize how much I had thought I created my identity to be, but really that was not important. Hmm. And I, that took me a while to actually process through this whole experience because obviously, you know, I was in the hospital for a year with meningitis and it was, re it was, re it was related to me being diagnosed earlier with, with HIV AIDS when I actually was in Los Angeles, when I was in New York, when I was doing AIDA. I didn't realize that at the time. Um, uh, I had probably been carrying this virus in my body for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. I was in a monogamous relationship with my former wife for over 16 years. Mm -hmm. And um, I had not known. I thought that I dodged a bullet because before I was with my wife, I was, I was in a relationship with a man for five years. And I thought, and again, I was in that relationship again because I, I did not want to be a promiscuous gay person in the in, in that environment and I was like well let me just settle down and be in a relationship and then you know wanted to experience um, a different lifestyle so I, I decided to to try a relationship with a woman which I really loved and I tell my former wife Karine who you know I loved you like I never loved another woman and I'll never love never love another woman like I loved you I, I, and it was, I, I think that sexuality is a lot more uh you know, people try to make it black and white, but I think most things are various shades of gray. <laughs> yes, know. absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it, it, it's, again, it's one of those things where, uh, it, interestingly enough, in terms of just my sexual identity, it, it was a very challenging thing because, again, uh, my cousin, Joey, who you also, I think, knew. Did you know Joey, my cousin? Yeah, he did Oklahoma. Oh no, you didn't do Oklahoma. You did Music Man. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So no. So so he he went to Beverly too, but he also he came. He was in the boy choir with me and with Lenny, mm -hmm. and we were we were we were in this boy choir together. And he came out very early, and um, he went to high school. He went to junior high school and high school with me, also. And um, he, he at one point said, "Phineas, come come to this bar with me." I, he says, "It's a gay bar, but I know you're gay," and I says, "Uh." I don't really know if that's really true or not. Mm -hmm. But he says, yeah, you are. Just come with me. You'll enjoy it. You'll have fun. 
So I went out with him and I did have fun. And I realized personally for me, because of my insecurities growing up and being, being ridiculed and being bullied because of my weight, I really did not have the opportunity to explore sexuality the way most kids explore it in terms of, you know, um, with the other sex. And basically, when I started going out to these clubs with my cousin, I was getting, I was, I was getting approached. I didn't have to actually deal with rejection. And if they wanted it, well, that's the I good like, thing about being gay, though. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, be. You you can wait to be approached. <laughs> yes, because exactly. someone will approach you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so that was a, that was kind of the reason why it kind of led I, I, me. I've often said that. I'd have a much more active sex life if I were gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, no, but yeah, I mean, it's because they're more aggressive. They're, they, 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 again, it's well, a male, the ma it's male energy, generally speaking, is more aggressive. Exactly, exactly, and so it was very helpful to me because I had been so so insecure and so kind of just um diminished in terms of my own identity my own self-worth and my own my own my own appeal especially from all the girls that i that i adored and just had major crushes on would not even see give me the give me the time of day i was like okay okay so it was very easy for me to actually just start well, that, that sure changed that. because i know when i was in europe with you women were throwing themselves at your feet <laughs> In spite of you having a girlfriend at that time, so how did you and your your former wife get together? My feeling is she must have been the aggressive one because she used to follow you around like a puppy. I used to think if I could only have someone love me as much as this woman loves you. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Posh, cause I'm not Julia's son not anymore. Don't call me Corey Baker, call me Marco Paj. Cause I'm not Julia's son like I was before.